welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we continue with Jeremiah chapter 13. Thus says Yahweh to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth, and put it around your waist, and do not dip it in water. So I brought a loincloth according to the word of Yahweh, and put it around my waist. And the word of Yahweh came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates, as Yahweh commanded me. And after many days Yahweh said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates, and I dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled, it was good for nothing." Then the word of Yahweh came to me, thus says Yahweh, Even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel, and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares Yahweh that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. You shall speak to them this word, thus says Yahweh the God of Israel, Every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, Do we not indeed know that every jar shall be filled with wine? Then you will say to them, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the king who sits on David's throne, the priests and the prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares Yahweh. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for Yahweh has spoken. Give glory to Yahweh your God. Before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears, because Yahweh's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up, with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, Why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up, and you suffer violence. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares Yahweh, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face, and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and neighings, your lewd whorings on the hills and the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will it be before you are made clean? This is the word of the Lord. We get a couple of analogies in the text, and the first one is uh, one of the action prophecies. So a time where a prophet is told to do something and the Lord is going to work through that action to share his message. And in this case, it is 
the idea of a loincloth, which is a garment that goes on your loins, we would probably just say underwear today. It's an undergarment. And so God tells Jeremiah to buy an undergarment, and he tells him to go, well, to wear it, and then to go all the way to the Euphrates and to bury it there, hide it in the cleft of a rock. So Jeremiah is going to travel a few hundred miles to get to the Euphrates River, either to the north, to the east, the northeast. The Euphrates is a big river. Um, so I'm not sure where the Euphrates he goes, but he remembers the place. He puts it there as God has commanded him to do. He hides it. Then God later tells him to go back. After many days, we're not told how long, he goes back, he digs it up, he finds it, and it's ruined, spoiled, good for nothing. And God makes that connection to his own people, that this is what they are. So close was their relationship, the the closeness of, we would talk about husband and wife being so intimately close, but you think of underwear being close to your, your body. It it is. It's right up against it. So close was God with his people, and yet they have abandoned him. They have become good for nothing, is the picture of this illustration. So he has made these that once clung to him, he's made them into nothing. They've made themselves into nothing. This is, I mean, you could do this one yourself if you really wanted to over the span of a few weeks. You know, take somebody's underwear and go bury it in your backyard and let a rain season go by and then go dig it up again and see, you know, anybody want to wear this? It's good for nothing. You're just going to throw it away, right? And we've all probably dug something up out of the ground like that, a piece of cloth or some kind of fabric or a glove or something. And it's just, it's ruined. It's destroyed. That's the picture here that God uses of Jeremiah's prophecy. Then we get the jars filled with wine. He's to tell the people, fill all the jars with wine, and they're going to snarkily respond that they know this, uh, this is obvious. But the point of this one seems to be God filling them, that they are they themselves are like empty jars, and God is going to fill them with wine, that is, he's going to fill them with drunkenness. Uh, he's going to harden their hearts, like he did to King Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. So it's the idea here that they are going to be so drunk, they're so filled with this, that they aren't going to... They're not going to repent, nor are they going to recognize the harm that they're bringing upon their neighbor. They're they're going to behave evilly, even more than they already have. God is going to destroy them. He's not going to spare or pity, not even the king, nor the priest, the prophet, or any inhabitant in the land. To look at this from the opposite perspective, you could talk with your kids about how God fills us. How does God fill us? We could talk about the Holy Spirit filling us in baptism, how he comes into our hearts, how God fills us with his word, how he fills us with his sacraments and the gifts that he gives, Christ's own body and blood on our lips, on our tongue, and good stuff like that. You could certainly talk about how God fills us today. You could also point to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where it's a familiar passage. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure is faith. And if you fill a jar with something, what happens when you break it? No, the jar is emptied, right? You you break a, a clay jar that's filled with water. The water goes everywhere. So it was with the early Christian church. They were filled with faith. If you break a Christian, if you martyr a Christian, their faith just went everywhere. Stephen gets martyred, and the Christian church spreads all through the, the kingdom. 
at the time. So Paul is going to use that as an expression of his faith to say that if, if he were to be killed, he knows God will raise him from the dead. So that goes all the way through, I think, verses 13 and 14 really drive home that last point that I mentioned. All right, then God threatens them um, with exile, first calling them to repent. That's what he does in verse 15 and 16. Be not proud. Give glory to Yahweh before he brings darkness. He's given them the opportunity to repent of their sins from before him at this time. Before your feet stumble, so before you fall, uh, the twilight mountains. Twilight is the, the setting of the sun. Uh, so if you're climbing a mountain in the dark, you can't see where you're going. And he makes it into a deep darkness. So God's judgment described as a darkness here. Maybe another family question moment. Can you think of a time where God brings darkness in judgment? The Exodus, going backwards from this text, is one, the, the ninth plague over the land, but also moving forward to the cross as darkness covers the land for three hours when Jesus sheds his blood for us on the cross. If you will not listen, which they won't and he knows, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. It's a deep phrase there. So God is going to weep. God is sorry. God is sad to see his people die. He's going to weep in secret. That is, they cannot see him weeping. He is apart from them because they have rejected him. And his reason for weeping is because their pride brings their destruction. Pride is a sin. Always caution Christians because our culture today looks at pride as one of the greatest things you can have. Pride in yourself, pride in the works of your hands, and so forth. And those things just bring death. My eyes will weep bitterly, same thing, because Yahweh's flock has been taken captive. So Babylon, the exile that is to come in 587 B.C. I'm not sure who 18 is a reference to. Say to the king and the queen mother, the timing on verse 13 is not given to us. The study Bible boldly declares this is Jehoiakim and his mother, which would have been um, Nehushta. I'm not sure where they got that from. Again, chapter 13 doesn't have anything to help us really attach a time period to it. Many of the kings... In the books of Kings, have their mothers listed by name, which is intriguing. I don't, I'm not exactly sure why, other than to recognize that queens, well, not queens in that sense, because they're not married to the king, but former queens um, are still treated like queens. They still have authority. The, the son must respect mom, and that there would have been some influence that this woman would have had over a kingdom. So that's part of it. Anyway, they're stripped of their royal power is the point of verse 18. Verse 19, as the enemy comes, they're going to even destroy the cities to the south. The, the cities of the Negev, the south country, the dry country, being shut up is, it doesn't do much. There wasn't much down there to begin with, but even those cities are going to be shut. All of Judah taken into exile. So lift up your eyes and see, verse 20, the judgment that comes from Babylon. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? They've squandered the things God entrusted to them. And what will you say when they said as your head, those whom you have taught yourself? Two of the last kings of Judah and Jerusalem are going to be puppet kings that are established not because they're good kings. In fact, most of these latter kings are not good, but simply by foreign powers. And they're going to be set up from right within family, bloodlines, 
If you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? So why am I suffering like this? Why is my kingdom being destroyed? God answers, it is for the greatness of your iniquity. Their sin. Sin brings death. Romans 3, Romans 5 talk this way. Most of scripture talks this way. The punishment for sin is death. So your skirts are lifted up. The picture of a prostitute or a whore that has been used in the book so far is used again with that idea right there to reveal your nakedness as a thing of shame. And so you suffer violence. Verse 23 is a rhetorical question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? So Ethiopians, Africa, would be of darker skin. They cannot. Can a leopard change his spots? He cannot. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. They can't. There is no repentance. And that's a picture true of us as well. Again, I point to Ephesians chapter 2, the idea that we are dead in our trespasses. It is only God who can bring about repentance in us. It's only God who can give the gift of faith to us. It is not our works. Or we would, we would be just like verse 23. We would not be able to change our ways if God did not change them for us. So God is going to scatter them. Chaff is the, the junk from the harvest that you don't want. So as you're using the threshing floor and tossing a, the wheat up into the, the sky, as it's bouncing, it breaks up, it loosens, and as you're tossing it up again and again, the, the chaff is blown away by the wind. So the, the seed, the grain that you want to keep that is good, that is heavier and falls back to the ground. So this is your lot. This is your outcome. This is what God is going to give to them. Why? Because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. So a lot of repetition here in this section. I will lift up your skirt over your face. Your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries, your neighings. They were compared to a donkey in heat a couple of chapters ago. Your lewd whorings on the hills and the field. And that is a reference to pagan god worship. As you would go to any hill you could find. Uh, the hill being upper, higher, closer to the sky, the heavens, uh, was often viewed as a religious place. Anytime it was higher elevation, you were closer to the gods. Uh, very frequent among pagan worship. So they, they did a lot of that. And that, that idea of whoring or prostitution, adultery, in this book is not a reference to a man cheating on his wife. It's a reference to the people of God cheating on God, worshiping idols instead of worshiping the Lord. Woe to you, Jerusalem! Jesus says that to Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 23. And then lastly here, how long will it be before you are made clean? I want you to pick up on that comparison and, and bring this, let your kids answer the question. How long until Jerusalem is made clean? And note again the connection to Jesus' words in the Gospels as he speaks woe over Jerusalem. So you've got here, they're made clean by destruction. God's judgment brings them out of the land, and so Jerusalem's clean because it's empty. But in Jesus' time, it is his cross, it is his crucifixion that will render Jerusalem clean because of his blood shed for his people. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, uh, the idea that our sins are, are washed away, they're made white like wool, even though they were like scarlet. Or we can think of Revelation chapter 7 as... The, the saints, God's people, are gathered before the throne, and one of the, the leaders of the people asks John, who gets to see this vision, where did these all come from? And John just simply says, you know. And so the elder, one of the, 
again, the heads of the church, he, he reveals to John, they've come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Our sins have been washed away. We have been made new, new creations in Christ. We have been made clean.